This is the Women Emerging Expedition Podcast, so you can follow the ups and downs and the roundabouts of the expedition and play your part in them. 24 women started on the 28th of May 2022 on this virtual expedition that will take nine months. We are women from across the world determined to find an approach to leadership that resonates with women. We'll be successful so that women the world over will be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Welcome, 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 Julia Middleton, Expedition Leader. This episode is on what we can learn from women who lead movements, extraordinary leaders who lead movements all over the world. I'm going to interview two people. Firstly, Latanya, who runs the Global Fund for Women, but also she spent the last two months writing a book which comes out soon called Everyday Feminist. And it's about absolutely this women who lead movements. And um, so I asked her what she'd learned about leadership from them. And then the second person I want to interview is somebody who I personally have admired all my life. You know, sometimes people say to me, you know, who are the women that you admire the most? Helen is one of them. The other woman I always talk about is Jude Kelly, who um, you've met already. She was on podcast 12. So my my two heroines have been uh, interviewed for this podcast. But um, Helena isn't just an everyday feminist. She's an every single day feminist. Uh, she's 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 a lawyer and she's always been at the heart of every movement I've seen over the last 30, 40 years that I have admired so much. She just makes things happen. And whenever I've done my small piece to, to start or to move or to create movements, she's also always backed me and helped me and encouraged me and sort of shown the way. So it is a delight to interview Helena. Uh, I asked Helena to talk through her latest passion um, step by step so that we could learn each piece of leadership from her. But first, let's talk to Latanya, who can give us a, a sort of um, a bigger picture. And, and let's start with uh, what sparks a woman to start a movement uh, and 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 then I've got to ask her loads of questions that I've always wanted to ask all movement leaders. And then towards the end, we'll get to, you know, how do you finish, move on, end your involvement, close, um, evolve a movement. So maybe how you close it and how you restart it, I suppose. But anyhow... Latanya first on what leads a woman to start a movement. It usually is going to be some event, some um, something that you can really put your finger on. And the leaders of these movements are usually going to talk about that event as the reason that they got into that movement. There's a lot of people who are just tired of, of the, the status quo, the circumstance, but it usually is this thing that pivots people into a circumstance where they need to rise, where they need to organize, they need to mobilize, because to not do so would not 
be who they are. And, and, and I, you know, I hope I- What does that mean? That what does sense. that mean? So, so if I am, you know, a person who have experienced a certain um, injustice and um, that injustice just does not sit well with me. And that's why I said it's usually some incident that means that it's either now or never. I've got to stand up. Um, I've been watching this, I've been living this, but I can't do it anymore. And usually leaders will talk about that point when they get to that point. They may not even realize when it happened. Some will, you know, like we've had these circumstances, particularly in the US of these incredible um, awful situations with police violence and or circumstances where women find themselves in particular um, where they just cannot sit down any longer. They can't not say anything. And so this is where the leadership begins. When, when you first emerge, when the movements are emerging, the pace is always fast. Um, the pace is um, urgent. I think it's probably a better word than fast. Um, everything is urgent. Um, there's usually some opportunity to change things, um, some opportunity to get in front of, you know, whether if, if it's you're seeking legislation or you're seeking social change, um, social, you know, uh, thinking, you know, you want to change people's minds. So there may be these media opportunities that have now opened up. I know when we talked to Tarana Burks over at, um, me too she talks about those moments and we all know you know when and sometimes people thought about it as co-opting you know the message of me too but it was actually the moment right it was the urgent moment that allowed it to spark um during that time she had been working on this for way before any of these hollywood um greats had come and and started to get involved um, but it was that moment where it became urgent to take advantage of it um urgent to to start using that message and the leader that she is knew it um, and rode that wave, even when people didn't know her name, right? But that was the leadership, um, you know, being able to capitalize on that moment and leverage it. How do women protect themselves from believing their own bullshit? <laughs> you got to get people around you who uh, call you. Um, and I, again, you and I have both seen, you know, both sides of that. You can surround yourself by a bunch of yes people, you know, who are just so enamored with who you are um, and never tell you the truth um, about where things are headed or what they're hearing, you know, through other movement members. Or you can surround yourself with people who will do a little bit of both, right? So you need people who are definitely sort of um, going to tell you what's right, um, but you also need to have those people around you who are going to absolutely tell you what's wrong. Um, I think sometimes, particularly with larger organizations that some of the feminists are running, it gets hard because you're not making every hire, right? And so, but you got to at least have around you um, in your immediate circle, people who will call you on your bullshit because otherwise all of us, you know, are, are you know, there's a possibility of getting heads that are so big that we don't know what else to do. <laughs> but what we think we should do. <laughs> you also mentioned that the, the great movement leaders have a sort of intuitive instinct for who to bring into the tent. Yes, they have these instincts around who are the right people to have, um, which organizations are doing the good things, um, meeting people and saying, how can we engage? How can we partner? I think we align. Um, I think our partnership um, could be more than just a conversation that we can do things together. 
And I, I've seen so much of this over the years, Julia, that I'm convinced that it must be just some sort of um, DNA gene or something. Because you see people who have it, and then you see people who absolutely don't. And it's okay. But normally, these people, they rise to where they are, either within the movement or within their organizations, because they have this instinct around who to bring into the circle. They're also not frightened of fighting, are they? Hmm, none of these are that we're talking about, honestly. And I, you know, I can't even think of a social movement right now, especially a feminist movement, where if you're scared, you're not in it. One of the things that I've been really, um, and it's kind of like towards the end of the book, but like, why do feminist movements need you? It's because they will really put themselves in positions that are kind of dangerous um, in order to meet the mission in order to achieve the drive, right, of the movement. And, um, and we need people, of course, to protect them, to make sure they're protected, not just their, like, words, you know, and their intent of what they're trying to do, but literally save their lives. I mean... Did you say you thought they were fearless? I don't believe that they're fearless. I was, you know, I don't know if you remember Reham uh, Yaqub in Iraq when she, she was murdered. Um, I was reading some of her um, statements and her letters before uh, the assassination, uh, and the same with Maricela in, um, in, uh, in Brazil. I, you know, I don't think they were fearless. I think that's not the word. They were afraid, and they kind of knew that they were being followed. They knew that they were, I mean, of course, they were being, like, openly threatened, but that fear didn't immobilize them they kept going they kept it didn't stop them so you know to be fearless is one thing but to be with fear and to continue is what we're talking about when we talk about these feminist leaders i'm assuming you also discovered that the great leaders of movement are good with the media and with social media you know i what I think I've learned right in this book is that there's a variety of, of ways. I think you'll find that good leaders of social movements want to have um, that expertise. They want to be able to have people who can utilize those tools to be able to organize. Um, I don't necessarily feel that they need to be the, you know, face. And in fact, a lot of these everyday feminists that you'll, when you read the book, you'll see that they, you know, may not be um, hugely popular at all, um, nor do they want to be. I found that lots of them are not interested in being in the limelight, um, but what they like about social media is that you can reach a whole lot of people, you know, with one click. And so because they have this instinct, they want to be able to do this. And so they they will tend to bring people into the fold and around them who's really good at that. Would you describe leaders of movements as ruthless? Hmm. I don't know about you that use that word, mostly because it there's a connotation of sort of uh, negative, you know, a negative connotation that you would cut anybody's throat, you know. I do though, um, and personally admire and a lot of movement leaders is that they will cut the throat of their opposition. Not, you know what I'm talking about, figuratively anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do like that as a characteristic and personality trait of movement leaders who um, won't, won't back down from opposition, who speak to power in ways that um, are, is clear, um, you know, and, and will not 
you know, mince words with them. So I, I like that. But ruthless kind of indicates that they'd also do the same to their own. Many of the feminist leaders that I know that they can do that. They can push back on their opposition and at the same time love and hold and and be a, a and be the caregiver of their movement at the same time, if that makes sense. But I wouldn't like to get in their way. No. I mean, think about some of the really badasses that you know. And I think the ones that have been incredibly successful as leaders um, hold that trait uh, dear. But at the same time, they're there for you. Every time you call them, you know, they're absolutely going to show up. Um, you know, they, they, you know, your birthday, your wedding, your, your babies, you know, they're always sort of as excited about that as they are about any of the movement work. So that's, for me, you know, that's the distinction, the juxtaposition, right, is that they're hard asses when they're talking to opposition, but they turn um, loving and soft when they're talking to their movement members. What's the relationship between a movement leader and anger? Hmm. There's probably a certain level of anger that got you there. Let's, you know, let's be honest. Um, uh, a certain amount of just um, <laughs> fuck youism, right? You know, I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> that that that, uh, that kind of energy, um, I see a lot. You know, I, I am not going to to do this anymore. Um, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm not listening to you anymore. Or God forbid, if you cross them, you know, um, and say you're going to do something or say you're on their side, I see, I see them get very angry um, with people who like just try to uh, use them, um, uh, co-opt their messages. And I think for a lot of, especially Black women um, leaders and movements, you know, I, I think they go through so much. Um, and I don't mean just, you know, by folks who are um, the perpetuators of whatever kind of um, issue that they're fighting against, but also those that say that they're their partners and don't deliver on it. And so, um, so I think anger is, is justified and necessary in some of this work. So don't hide anger. Why? You know? <laughs> Lots of leaders call you a bitch anyway. <laughs> lots of leaders would say, um, if you express your anger, then you've lost it. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's an emotion that can drive a lot of, of change, a lot of energy. Um, and sometimes I think if you're not angry, then you're probably in the wrong game um, for when we're talking about transformational social change. If it doesn't make you angry, it probably won't make you do anything. What's the biggest mistake or blindness that you see in women who run movements? I have to go back to this issue around caring for themselves. The biggest mistake I see is that people who just keep going, um, keep going uh, and, and probably not just for themselves, but they're probably driving <laughs> a whole group of other people um, until they can't function anymore. Um, I've seen it time and time again where, um, you know, not only do you as a feminist leader um, feel like you have to sacrifice yourself, but you also feel that everybody around you has to sacrifice themselves <laughs> in order to get shit done. And it's, you know, it's, it's not necessary, but I know that for many, um, it, you know, it's like so, they feel like so much is on their shoulders that success means that they have to, um, 
continue working like a dog. Um, you know, they have to continue being everywhere at once. They have to continue um, uh, showing up in ways that actually might affect their own health, affect their own sanity. Um, th that's the thing that I, I see. Um, and, and, you know, and that's where decline starts, not just for the individual, but then it affects the movement. And then that brings me to probably related, but secondary is the succession planning, you know, thinking about this with a time horizon and saying, I can do this. I mean, all of us should, right? You know, I could do this job for about five years. <laughs> That's what I've got in me, you know, a little more, a little less. But who am I going to bring along? Who is going to be beside me um, that then can step into this role and keep, keep it moving, you know, keep, keep getting it done so that I can back out? Um, I've seen some good stuff, um, but a lot of bad stuff in that because I think it's hard for us to think about our exit. I'm honest, there was one movement that I was absolutely at the heart of beginning mm -hmm. and we failed totally. Mm -hmm. The forces that be mm -hmm. <laughs> made sure we did not succeed. Yes. And, yes. and actually it was choosing the moment to recognize that and say, it's not going to work this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you um, make sure that we're not in the process of just sort of the fight after the fight after the fight and never one, recognizing success or two, understanding that it's not always the same groups, it's not always the same people that have to be in the fight, being incredibly strategic. I think the best leaders also know when it's time to call it shop. And that could be the movement itself. Like we, you know, like we were talking about, like the movement hasn't, uh, has or has not gotten the success that they wanted. Or it could be, mean the leader themselves could be that this is the moment when I step out so that new leadership can come in to do a new thing. Um, so if the law was passed, as, as I was talking about, then maybe uh, the, the movement for um, changing minds is somebody else that's another leader you know and i think leaders um intuitively and you know with self-reflection um it also with considering the kind of care they need to take for themselves and their families make some of those determinations and um and, and we've seen that happen yes but not often i mean i don't know if it's you but i i i think i see lots of people who just keep on and on and on and won't hand over and I think that's a shame because usually what happens, as you know, I mean, nobody can go on forever as there's burnout. I think we've seen in, um, in Latin America, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, where there's been like sort of the feminist movement itself, you know, where people grew old in the movement and a lot of people felt shut out, <laughs> you know, like younger people who wanted to lead um, and it was time for them to lead and they had new issues they wanted to address, felt like that they weren't able to sit at the table. What you see with some of the greater leaders is these shifts, you know, so they may stay in the movement for the long game, but the leadership, the face, the, um, the agenda starts to shift to somebody else. And so um, I think having that kind of, um, you know, astuteness is going to be important if, if a social movement is to really, really drive change. Thank you so, so much, Latanya for everything that you said of the one that 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 absolutely i think is caught in my head perhaps the strongest is is 
is our slight disagreement over the word ruthless. Uh, I think you may not want to use the word ruthless, but I think ruthless is the word. I think you're right that um, women who lead movements are ruthless with the opposition. But what's so intriguing, as you say, is that they are also so deeply kind and loving to the people in the movement. And it's it's that combination that's fascinating. So let's um let's go on to Helena, the woman I've always admired so much. Of course, when you when you have a heroine, you tend to sort of sit at their feet, so I did. And um I promise you I did end up pinning down the leadership learning. But first, I just wanted to, to tell you the story. that it's a, it's a beautiful story, I think, of one of the latest movements that she has started. Now, let me just tell you about my judges. Uh, in 2008, um, the, the International Bar Association had been very active in creating uh, a new a bar association. I've never been one in Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, and I remember advocating very strongly that if they were reforming the law and trying to make the, the law at the heart of this country as it was developing anew, was to have women part of that lawmaking because women needed protecting too. And that part of that social contract of societies is that you provide safety, but, but women have to be also made safe in their homes or in the public arena. We encouraged the, the, the law schools to open up and bring women in and to have the judiciary include women, to, to introduce law that was about eliminating violence against women and to create women's courts where women could have confidence about coming with their, their uh, grievances. And, uh, and these fabulous women were in, in those courts. In February of 2021, uh, uh, two Supreme Court women judges were assassinated. Uh, a Taliban, I mean, he might have been Al-Qaeda, who knows, but, but somebody opens the door of the car that they're in and shoots both of them, one through the head and one through the heart. And then, barely six months later, um, the announcement is that we're going to be, the, the, the West is going to be leaving, uh, the United States, Britain, other forces, uh, going to be leaving by the end of August. We started receiving um, messages from the judges saying, help us, please, I'm hiding in my basement. They've let these people out of prison that we sent to jail. And, uh, and it was heart-wrenching. And so I then uh, started finding out about how, to, uh, how we could get them out. I found out that um, an, an American evangelical groups were getting Christians out. And so we contacted them to see if we could put some of our judges in the back of their planes. And they said, look, we haven't got room at the back of our planes, but this is the, the, the charter company we're using and gave us the details and so on. And so um, we then discussed the possibility of chartering plane, a plane. I mean, let me tell you, I was not imagining at that point I was going to be chartering planes. I had never thought I would be chartering planes. Um, but we found out that chartering a plane costs $750,000 um, because there's no insurance and so on, and the Taliban could impound a plane. And the first thing was that we um, got in a bit of money in order to get them into safe houses. Um, we got some money to pay for some a bit of security to give them the protection at that point. And then the question was, could we afford a, a charter plane? And so um, we started, um, I have to say that honestly, a, a large part of this was about the network of women that I know because of the work I've done over my life. And so sometimes you have to take a risk. You have to take a risk and believe that you can do it. 
And I can't pretend that there weren't times where I was sort of breathless thinking, oh my God, this could go horribly wrong. And how, how am I going to be able to, um, uh, you know, explain this to the world if, uh, um, it, you know, the Taliban prevent this plane going and we've spent all this money getting a plane into Mazar al-Sharif, a northern airport to take them out. It could have gone wrong at many different stages and some things did go wrong. You know, Iran said that they wouldn't let us fly over their airspace. Um, we had difficulties at first getting people out who didn't have passports or their children didn't have passports. Would a, an identity document be enough? Could we persuade the person who ran the airport at Mazar Sharif uh, that to let them come with identity papers rather than uh, a passport? We ended up getting three flights out. You know, it was 103 women judges, prosecutors, so there were a couple of MPs on it. I got the two sons of the, one of the, the Supreme Court judges who was assassinated. We got out 500 people. And it was a sort of Schindler's List thing. But like, don't, don't for a minute think that I started off thinking, you know, I'm going to get out five. I didn't. For a minute, I was going to get out one or two women judges. And then it grew like Topsy. And my ambition for it grew as well. And, um, but part of it is um, collaboration with others working along with others and therefore multiplying the, the possibilities of what you can do. So then they all got to Greece. And then what happened? Oh, God. I mean, if we're talking about naivety, I mean, I mean, everyone thinks that I'm this very worldly person, you know, and of course, I, I mean, to a large extent, I think I am. Although things still shock me. That I assumed that once these women were out, and we then asked the world to open its arms and take them in with their husbands and children, that the world would do it. And it wasn't true. They weren't, they weren't welcomed everywhere. It was really hard work to get countries to, to take um, those women judges in. I mean, I'm afraid that of my cohort, um, only six of the women judges and prosecutors um, were given places in the United Kingdom. I have to say that Canada um, um, was the real, um, uh, you know, offer offerer of sanctuary, and um, and they've taken in most of those women and their families. Um, but um, it was a shock to me that there was such a lack of welcome. Well, now while you've been talking, I've been writing down some of the things that I take from your, that story about leadership. Let, can I play some of them back to you? Yes, do. So one of them is the importance of naivety, the importance of being naive. Yes, I mean, I mean maybe naive is, 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 uh, is too pejorative a word in the way that we've come to use it. Um, I think that having, having a sort of innocent belief that somehow um, you will make it work, um, that it, it, things will come good. Uh, I mean, it is about hope in a way. It's about I mean, keeping a level of, a high level of hope. I mean, there was a moment I get a phone call to say that um, the cheap hotels, the out of season hotels that we had arranged for this um, second lot of evacuations had all been canceled. And uh, all these people, the flights were the following morning. And these people were all already up at staying in, a, in hiding places close to the airport from which they would be leaving. I, I have to tell you that, I mean, tears began to roll down my face that um, Airbnb had sort of uh, said that they would help refugees um, in a different context. 
anyway, um, and so I said to one of my uh, lawyers, see if you can get a number for the somebody at the very top of Airbnb. And um, I mean, it was a ridiculous thing because I had so many people and how, we, you know, Airbnb was not going to be exactly opening its arms to this vast number of, of Afghan refugees. But I, I just thought I would ask them. And I got through to a very senior executive and uh, I, I, she, I told her the story. And, um, and I have to tell you, I wakened her in the middle of the night because I had completely forgotten the time difference. I ended up saying, we can't find Airbnb places at this short notice, but we will um, we'll find hotels and we'll pay for a fortnight of them staying in hotels. So Airbnb came up with that. Um, That's the second one I wrote down, is the ability of a leader to tell the story, even in the middle of the night on the phone to a stranger. Yeah. So that's absolutely crucial, isn't it? The ability to tell the story. You really have to. I mean, I, I've always, I've always felt that um, advocacy is part of being a leader, and and you have to be able to to you have to, as you say, be able to tell the story. You have to be able to uh, um, make a compelling case for the need of help because people are being asked for help all the time. They, you have to sort of remind people what, what's involved in being a judge. It's not just about being, a, it's not, you know, people imagine judges are sitting in great comfort somewhere. They're dealing with this stuff. And then they, they, these women had threats. And sitting as judges, they were receiving threats all the time. Um, even when we thought it was, it was all working, um, they were under threat and had to be protected because um, of the work they were doing. They were living with threat and with fear. And then the next thing I wrote down while you were talking is that um, I remember a woman once talking to me about putting pennies in heaven, that, you, that you, you have to form friendships with masses, masses of people um, over the years and you put pennies in heaven. And then when the moment comes and you need the pennies back, there are lots of people. So you know, that horrible expression for leaders, which is networking, it's much more than networking, isn't it? You have to build deep, trusting friendships so that when you shout help, people come. It is important, that thing, that pennies in heaven thing, about, um, and doing good things for other people. Um, so that, you know, you've made yourself available. I've never done this thing when people phone me up and say, can you give me legal advice or can you help on something? Of course, I do, I, I always do that. And I think that, um, those things do um, help in the end when you, you need real help yourself for, for a project. Then you have to show confidence even when you don't feel any confidence at all inside yourself. And you have to, you have to take the risk and believe that you can do it and show to everybody else that you believe, even if you're terrified inside. Of course, I mean, people, I mean, you know, there is, a, a quite, there is an issue which is around self-belief. And I think I probably did get that from my mother. I always remember an American friend of mine meeting my mother, a working class woman from Glasgow, and saying, your mother is amazing, you know, because she, she does stand tall, although she's four foot 10, <laughs> amongst any people. Um, and because she knew who she was and didn't feel okay about it. And my mother's thing to us as children was always, um, never think you're better than other people, but nobody's better than you. <laughs> and I do think that being able to look someone in the eye and not to be afraid or intimidated by them. And I, and I, 
I, I do think that, um, that I learned that from her. And, um, and, and so if you're asking people for help for others, it, it, it's the easiest thing in the world in a way. The other one is, that, is your point, which I think is really interesting too, is that you never imagined, when you started off, you never imagined the scale of it. You know, don't be put off because you think, oh, you know, I mean, because don't imagine that there were, that when, you know, when, when I, as a young lawyer, was scaling up and going up to the Court of Appeal to do cases, that I didn't go, oh, uh, and, and think, oh God, I'm going to be appear appearing in front of three great judges and they're all going to be quizzing me about my arguments and my and the legal basis from which I'm grounding my appeal. So, you, you know, you've really got to uh, face the challenges that are frightening to you. Um, um, that doesn't mean so, to take risks, but it doesn't mean reckless risks. I mean, I, I'm not reckless. I, re I make calculations in all of this, but I do think that you have to do the thing that sometimes seems quite frightening. Promise there's only two more. One of them is the one that I find that I'm hopeless at, which is how do you cope with the disappointment when people and systems let you down? Well, of course you get angry. Um, and I did feel anger. Um, I did feel let down um, that um, uh, somehow my own government drew up, had sort of rules and drew up the, the, the bridge, um, uh, which would have provided opportunities for people here. Um, I used to shout when I was angry, <laughs> and I still occasionally do, but I've learned to be much more sort of, if you like, um, directional about how I, how I place my anger. Um, and my disappointment and to express it in a way that I think is hard for people to hear, but I think that they have to hear it. How much do you think, and actually, how much do you um, recognize this truth in yourself that one of the great pillars of leadership is energy and enthusiasm? I, I think you have to have it. I think that people who seem to be sort of um, flat in their in their um, engagement um, often have difficulty connecting with the wider public. And I think I think passion is a useful thing, and it has to be harnessed, obviously, in a positive way. Um, I also think that um, and I feel it really strongly at the moment that I feel that integrity is vitally important and truthfulness. Um, people know. I know this from juries, you know, I've spent my life um, in, in courtrooms and I, and, you know, you, you bring a witness to the court and you, and, and you stand up to cross-examine them. And, and before I do, I, I watch them very carefully. And, um, and there's almost a sort of, you almost smell it in the courtroom when someone's telling the truth and you know when people dissemble and you know when people reach easily for a lie and for an easy answer. And I think in public life at the moment, we've got too much of that reaching easily for um, an excuse or a denial. Uh, and I think people know, and I think that integrity in public life and integrity is, is vitally important. And I think leaders, if we want to be leaders, we have to really be, be honest and honest about our own failures and, and learn from, uh, from the fact that we sometimes get things wrong. Um, and we do. Um, and, and also being honest about the times when we have felt fear. And, I, and, and being worried that you've made the wrong call. Um, so I think that we have to be much more honest. And I, and I think people prefer that to the, the self-confident, uh, you know, denial of any uh, 
uh, frailty. And I think women are often much better at admitting that they, 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 they've got things wrong, but um, that they've got, I've still got a vision. You know, I think it's really important, but I think truth and integrity are vital in leadership. Thank you. Thank you, both Latanya and Helena. That was utterly delicious. Uh, I suppose to ruthless um, and loving and the combination of the two. After Helena, we've added that, um, that extraordinary belief that somehow you'll make it work despite all the evidence to the contrary. Leaders just exude hope. It's been a glorious episode. And actually, I think next week's episode, which is the 30th episode, should continue this story about movement. Helena and Latanya have given us quite high level. What I want to do next week is go a little bit deeper down into two things that they've mentioned. The first one is is this, this ability for leaders of movements to tell a story. Let's, let's find out more about that. So I went and talked to Melissa, and she'll be on next week's episode. And then the second one that continues always to intrigue me is that movements are so much about timing. So I'm going to talk to Uma about a bit more detail on how to judge the moment, the judge the moment to go faster and judge the moment to maybe even slow down, to judge when when you're driving or when perhaps you're being driven by others. Um, how do you how do you judge the pace? So let's go deep on both of those uh, because women who run movements are fascinating leaders. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We would love you to follow the expedition and provide your own stories and perspectives. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast and joining the Women Emerging Group on LinkedIn, where you can have your say.